What's going on everyone? Welcome to the conversation here on TYT. I am your sometimes host Francesca Fiorentini. It has been a very intense time and I'm so glad we have our next two guests to dissect everything that's been going on. I'm going to read a little bit from our first guest's recent column in The Nation magazine. January 6, 2021, the day the GOP was finally unavoidably confronted with the lethal consequences of tolerating a demagogue for four years. The day the cretinous, opportunistic Republican Party was forced to confront the fact that, as JFK once put it, if you seek to ride the tiger, you end up in its belly. If you tolerate a president who calls neo-Nazis very fine people. If you tolerate a president who tweets support for militias trying to invade the Michigan State Capitol. If you tolerate a president who calls the free press enemies of the people. If you indulge a president who threatens private citizens. If you acquit a president impeached for manifestly criminal actions and trying to strong arm the Ukrainian government into providing dirt on a domestic political opponent. If you turn a blind eye to a president's repeatedly demanding that election officials commit fraud by finding him a predetermined number of votes. If in short, you dally with demagogy and mob rule in both the political and criminal sense of the word mob. If you buy into a lethal personality cult, eventually those chickens will come home to roost. And those are the very, very telling word words of my next guest, Sasha Abramsky, columnist and author of this article, The GOP is No Longer a Viable Governing Party, and the book Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Francesca, it's a pleasure, thanks for having me on. Yes, of course, and and what a perfect way to sum everything that we've seen up. The chickens are coming home to roost, and it it has been a wake up call. I'm just not sure for whom. <laughs> Do you think that Republicans are hearing the alarm bells sound finally? I do, and I think they're hearing it for two reasons. One, they were genuinely personally scared. Because for five years, Donald Trump has turned the mob against other people, against Muslims and Mexicans and Black Lives Matters protesters, against political opponents, against women suing him for sexual harassment, whatever it might be. He's turned the mob against other people. And this time, he, in the most visceral way possible, turned it against legislators. So I think on one level, there's just this realization that this stuff isn't just a game, but it's actually very, very dangerous. And on the second level, there's a pragmatic thing in play here, which is Trump has lost all power. In the, in the last three days, we have seen the most remarkable shrinking of this sort of political would-be strongman into a midget. He's just vanished overnight. Um, and by the time your audience sees this interview, it's entirely possible Trump won't be the president anymore. Um, so I think the GOP now has to confront the fact that there is such national and international revulsion at what they have unleashed on the country that unless they get a handle on it, unless they clean house, unless they get rid of Donald Trump, unless they censor Hawley and Cruz, unless they get a handle on these you know, fascist street fighting gangs who've attached themselves to the party, unless they do that as a governing party, they're dead in the water. Not, not just for one or two or three election cycles, they will not recover from this because this was literally their own president inciting an armed uprising against the American constitutional system of government. Yes, absolutely. I I want to talk a little bit more about that because I I agree with you. I'm there and I truly believe this is a wake up call. Um, 
for a party that has been sleepwalking into this kind of extremism for so long. And I don't, you know, now exactly. It's like Republicans are always Republicans until like, you know, their nephew is gay, you know, or their niece was in a mass shooting. And then suddenly they're like, oh, gee, maybe we should have gun control. Or maybe gay rights are important, you know, things like that. But there is an argument out there, which is that no, Holly and Cruz are the future of the Republican Party. They're gonna clean up. And this sort of anti-reality nut job, you know, wing of the party is going to continue um, to call the shots. What are your thoughts on that? If Foley and Cruz are the future of the Republican Party, it is a party that's capable of getting 20 to 25 percent of the electorate. There's no way a party that explicitly links itself to the Proud Boys, and you know, there were people running into that Capitol building. Wearing t-shirts saying six million Jews weren't enough. In other words, the Holocaust wasn't a complete job and they wanted more people killed. There is no way you're gonna create a governing majority now that the public, now that Trump's bubble has burst, now the cult of the personality has burst, and it has all over the place. Um, there is no way in the wake of this wreckage you create a governing coalition based around people like Hawley and Cruz. So if they stay in, if they really are the future of the Republican Party. It's gonna resemble the French National Front. It's gonna be a party on the edge of politics, capable of becoming a large noisy minority, but not capable of governing. Mm-hmm. Um, on, and, and you've seen this, you, you saw it with statements by people like Lisa Murkowski at the end of the week, who said, look, if this is the future of the Repo- Republican Party, count me out. Right, and I think right. you'll see that from Mitt Romney, you're gonna see it from Ben Sass, you're gonna see it from a growing number of Republicans who want no part in sort of paramilitarism and fascism, which is what Trumpism ended up becoming. Yes, and yet, and, and even people who um, have been on board with Trump policies from for the entire time he's been in office, like Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence, are calling out this behavior. In fact, I think we know that Mike Pence was responsible for helping call the National Guard finally to help actually restore some peace in the Capitol. What is your what are your thoughts on that now that like here we have these these awful urchins that absolutely helped someone like Trump, you know, rise to power, and yet even they are turning their backs. Look, I've been writing on Trump for five years since the primary season in late 2015. And right from the get-go, If anyone was paying attention, it was blindingly obvious that Trump was a demagogue, that he was flirting with fascism, that he was willing to inject violence into the American political system, and that he was using the mob. That was obvious from the get go. And people like Pence and people like um, Elaine Chao and all the others who've sort of belatedly, or Betsy DeVos, who've belatedly seen the light and realized just how dangerous he is, it's a little bit late in the day. Because let, let's just reiterate what's happened in the last four years. This is a man who put children in cages. This is a man who asked his Homeland Security people why he couldn't have migrants shot in the legs. It's a man who asked why he couldn't build a moat on the southern border and fill it with alligators. I mean, this man has given many, many indications that he's clinically insane and that he's a brutalist and a sadist. Yeah. And they stuck with him. So Pence and all these others now, yes, they're going to get a footnote saying you weren't quite as bad as your boss. But the bulk of the chapter written on them in this period is gonna say, you are pretty goddamn awful. And I'm sorry if I've sworn there, but there we go. <laughs> I think that is allowed. Um, now talk to me about the Democrats. How, how 
can the Democrats ensure that there is an accountability? How can the Democrats drive a wedge in the Republican Party? Should they be driving the wedge or should they just be sort of, you know, refuse refuse to work with them now that they have the Senate? What are your thoughts on their their play now? Well, my thoughts looking at this is the Democrats have an extraordinary opportunity that four days ago would have been inconceivable. So number one, they control the US Senate, which means they control the committees, which means they're gonna be able to get their legislation put on the floor for a vote. It means they're gonna get their judicial nominees through. It means they've got at least a fighting chance of a sensible climate change policy if they can get people like Joe Manson and some of the other centrist Democrats aboard. But it means the legislative agenda changes. But beyond that, because of what happened at the Capitol um, on January 6th, there is suddenly this absolutely extraordinary moment when the public is paying attention to just how debased politics has become, just how crude it's become, how based around lies and manipulation of information it's gotten, which gives again, not just the Democrats, but anyone of good conscience an opportunity to reshape politics. And you know, there's that statement, never sort of let a good crisis go to waste. This is a marvelous, marvelous opportunity that the Republican Party through their sheer inanity have presented the Democrats to actually change politics for the better. Because held a mirror up to ourselves and seen what happens when you let extremism run rampant. And the Republican Party has become by default a party of extremists. So now the Democratic Party can basically fill a void and they can come in with sensible party politics. They can come in with a voice that isn't based around extremism and they can craft an agenda that actually can help the public um, that can deal with all these you know, extraordinary crises from the coronavirus pandemic to the political crisis. The Democrats have an opportunity to actually reshape politics for the better over the next two or four years. Um, and this is a gift that you know, paradoxically, this is Trump's last gift. In the sheer awfulness of his exit from power, he's actually opened the door to a better politics at the back end of his presidency. Absolutely, and they cannot waste it. I think this time is, it's bigger than it's bigger than partisanship. I just want to ask you one last thing, which is, what is the importance of leadership right now? I mean, you know, in terms of where we go from here, I think we've seen when there's an absence of it. But what, just what are your some of your final thoughts on that? It's absolutely crucial. I mean, Trump was not an absence of leadership. It was an absence of sensible leadership and of decency in leadership. There was leadership. It was leadership of the mob and it was leadership of a massive propaganda machine. And it was leadership essentially of a cult of the personality. So now we're gonna have a government that's actually rational. And we're gonna have a government that's actually listening to scientists and listening to public health experts and listening to climate experts. It's gonna be a huge sea change. And it might not on a day-to-day basis be as titillating or as sort of you know, bizarrely fascinating as the Trump era. But sometimes calm, quiet, deliberative government, well always calm, quiet, deliberative government is better than the kind of nonsense that Trump threw up over the last four years. So good riddance to this man. Let's get him out of power, let's get him out of office. Let's move on to a more decent chapter in American history. Sasha Abramsky, thank you so much for your insights. Um, Everyone jumping at the shadows, uh, the triumph of fear and the end of uh, the American dream is is his book. And his column is the GOP is no longer a viable governing party. Thanks so much, really good to speak with you. You too, take care. 
Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm Francesca Fiorentini. My next guest is K. Sabil Rahman, Associate Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School and the President of Demos, a think and do tank that powers the movement for a just, inclusive and multiracial democracy. Sabil, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, I don't know why I'm so happy because uh, we have to make sense of some dark, dark days. And I think I've been asking everyone I, I meet this, but what do you feel like is one of the main lessons that have come out or that has come out of this storming of the Capitol uh, and the vote of 127 legislators to overturn a democratic election? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that folks have been saying a lot, you see on Twitter and elsewhere that, you know, this isn't America. But I think the real lesson actually is that this very much is America, right? The truth is that in our history, we have had a long running battle between two visions of America. One is the fight to be an inclusive multiracial democracy. And you saw that in after the Civil War, you saw that in the Civil Rights Movement, you're seeing that now what's trying to be born in, say, the Georgia results of just earlier this very week. Uh, against another very different idea of America, which is really a white supremacist ethno-nationalist state, right? Yeah. And it was the latter that stormed the Capitol, tried to violently overturn the results of an election. Uh, and by the way, that type of attempt to overthrow an election has also happened often in our history. You see lots of examples uh, in the post-Civil War Jim Crow South, for example, of state and local elections being violently overturned. So the lesson here is that uh, we're in a deep, deep crisis, but this is one that has been uh, lurking beneath the surface in our country for a long time, and one that will take a long time and real serious transformative change to get us out of it. Absolutely, and I know we often want to look forward, and we're always told to look ahead and not backwards, and especially by Republicans who have absolutely enabled uh, this behavior and this moment. Yeah. So, but how can we, you know, go forward and hold? those who need to be held accountable, accountable. Um, those who tried to overturn this election and and not just normalize their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the path ahead is really about both accountability and transformation. And so on accountability first, you know, we're seeing some of it start to happen, right? There's acceleration in the House and in the Congress about calls for a second impeachment of President Trump over inciting an insurrection over the Capitol. I think that's exactly right. Um, impeachment, the remedy for impeachment means that not only is uh, Trump removed from office, but that Congress could actually bar him from ever holding any further elected office, which is really important, right? He's technically still constitutionally eligible, right? You know, uh, we- He's we, already, we but he was impeached. He was already impeached. Is that not the case? You know better than, than well, I do. So he, was, he was impeached by the House, but, but the Senate uh, acquitted him of those charges. So what you actually I, need is the right. Senate to also- uh, convict and and remove the president, uh, you know, from for it to stick. Um, the other piece of accountability then is about those hundred plus lawmakers that you mentioned earlier, Francesca. Right? I mean, you have peer people who are using their elected power to try to support the overthrow of an election, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, these folks need to not only just walk back their language from yesterday, which you're seeing, you know, uh, it would be hilarious if it weren't so uh, awful. Right, uh, just kind of people. These people don't think think that we don't know what they said just yesterday. Um, but you need we need more than that. I I think that there needs to be serious sanction on those lawmakers, um, uh, possibly even uh, their resignations from office. Uh, and the the last piece of accountability is I think about the larger 
um, ecosystem that helped uh, foment and incite these actions. So, you know, Twitter is late to the party, uh, but finally suspending the president's account. Um, experts on radicalization, on extremism, on social media and disinformation have been calling for a long time for the yeah. platforms to get serious about combating right wing extremist violence uh, on, and incitement on the platforms. That has to be a serious policy going forward. Absolutely, and 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 yet, you know, these are the same lawmakers who have been okay with astroturfing things like the Tea Party, when you know, Koch brothers and other dark moneyed interests sure. flooded a lot of those protests. I mean, this is sort of the origin of what we're seeing now, the natural progression. You know, it starts as a random Tea Party protest and it ends with storming the Capitol. And you've actually, I yeah. think. Mentioned the that there is an amendment in the Constitution that allows for Congress to be removed, lawmakers to be removed if they are aiding or abetting insurrection. Can you talk a little bit about that, or what do you? Yeah. Has that ever been used? Yeah, absolutely. So the the Fourteenth Amendment has a section in it that allows for the removal from office of lawmakers who support insurrection, support seditious acts, and that was actually put in there after the Civil War with the former Confederacy in mind, because the idea was. You just literally fought a war, an actual declared war. And then what do you do with these people who were just a few years ago sitting Congress people and senators in Washington? Do you welcome them back? And the argument at the time was that actually a republic can't continue if you have people sitting in office who are actively fomenting insurrection. Mm. And so it was written into the Constitution that a democracy can't survive in that scenario, right? You have to remove those people from power. And you know, I think there's a real question about at what point is Senator Hawley's actions, Senator Cruz's actions, the hundred plus House GOP members who still were are continuing to to raise questions about the election. At what point is that in itself incitement for further insurrection? Absolutely. Um, I I want to turn a little bit to that. Transformation, the multiracial democracy, and this huge victory that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had in Georgia, flipping the state blue, and obviously having the first black senator from the state. What do you, what can we learn from Georgia, and what does it mean? Just sort of your reflections on what it means yeah. in this moment. Yeah, well, I think Georgia is very much echoing the story that has been now long forgotten in a way of November 3rd too, because we saw the same thing in Arizona and in a lot of other places in the country. What you're seeing is, I think, two things. One is a new kind of multiracial people power, bottom up people power that is being built, you know, block by block, brick by brick by brick by these incredibly powerful and committed organizers who have been working on the ground in communities, in communities of color and working class communities, creating that kind of multiracial constituency that powered Georgia and Arizona and other places. And is you know, black voters, brown voters, people of color, working class folks, young folks. So that is a powerful new coalition that you're seeing emerge. But the other thing you're seeing is a growing commitment, I think, to structural transformative change. Because it's one thing to win an election, we then actually have to pass legislation to prevent what has happened these last four years from ever happening again. And I think it's notable that a lot of these new people coming into Congress are talking about things like democracy reform, combating voter suppression, ending money in politics, and even bigger things like statehood for Washington DC, you know, a majority yeah. black city. There's a long list of things we need to fix. But I think this new Congress, now that it is a 50-50 Congress, uh, really needs to take this opportunity to make those changes. 
Absolutely, expanding democracy, I think, is our ultimate goal. Um, what What do you think everyday people can do? Like, what can we do outside of Congress to support? I mean, explicitly the the squad, which grew in power within the Democratic Caucus, um, more progressive members, you know, bringing way more um, racial diversity, yeah. like class diversity. Um, it feels sometimes like we can just be these cheerleaders, but like we can do more than that. You know, as as the president of a think and do tank, what's the do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, part of it is uh, continuing to put pressure on and and uh, both support and pressure on our elected officials at the state and local level, mm-hmm. uh, because you know it's one thing to win an election, but we still need to pass legislation and make these changes happen. And so continuing to you know call your elected representatives to. Um, uh, to push for the kind of democracy reforms that we were talking about. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is our democracy only works when all of us actually show up. And showing up is not just in the streets, but in the ballot box and even in office. So one thing I'm really eager to see is all of uh, young folks, people of color, uh, you know, new folks who have been uh, activated these last few years. Um, can we get more of these people, more of us kind of, uh, folks to Run for office, run for your state and local offices. Um, you know, get involved in the political process to join uh, as full-time members, grassroots organizations, unions. Right? These are that's the yeah. back end infrastructure of people power, and people yes. power has to be more than just voting. We want it to actually grow over time. So I think there's a lot more that we can do. Uh, I'm actually really hopeful about the future of our democracy uh, because of the sheer inspirational power of just our communities showing up from the uprisings this summer, right through November, right through Tuesday in Georgia. Yes, if we can focus on that, I also feel hopeful. I just last question, cuz you know, the, the muck is just is not gonna leave us that quickly. Um, but you know, how do you feel like we neutralize some of the 75 million people who voted for Trump? Um, does he, do, do they peter out? Uh, how? What? What are your thoughts? Uh, I know this yep. is a huge question for one minute we have left, yep. but uh, they're um, uh, they're going to keep mobilizing. Uh, I think we have to do both have accountability, but also um, uh, response, right? So like uh, accountability in terms of uh, uh, actually prosecuting people who are being violent, who are um, attacking our institutions, attacking other people. Like four people died. In, mm-hmm. in the attack on the Capitol. Um, but I think that's where we need to break uh, the hold of social media that is spreading disinformation, accelerating radicalization, and make those structural democracy reforms that makes it so that these 75 million people don't have outsized political power, right? The um, Democrats have 50 seats in the Senate, but they represent 40 million more people than the 50 Republicans in the Senate. That is untenable in the long run. Absolutely. Reform it all. Uh, thank you so much, uh, K. Sabil Rahman, um, president of Demos, a think and do tank. Uh, check check uh, him out. Um, we got your handle at some somewhere at some point. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, and please take good care. Yeah. Be safe. Thanks, Francesca.